Okay, we're going to have to talk about oil and gas again because of what's going on in Europe and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of course, and because of inflation. It should be now beyond obvious that whatever the plans and the subsidies and enthusiasms for building more wind, solar, and electric vehicles, the world still needs a lot of hydrocarbons and will for a long time. Listeners to this podcast know that I've said many times, I'll say it again, over 80% of the world's energy comes from oil and natural gas and coal, the hydrocarbons. Any shortfall in supply means hardship, real hardship, and inflation, because prices go up and supplies contract, which inflation also causes hardships, which again is beyond obvious in the current environment we're in. So the solution to both energy inflation and geopolitical entanglements associated with energy supplies that the world has to have is to produce more hydrocarbons. So in this edition of The Last Optimist, we're going to talk about the answer to the question, could America produce a lot more hydrocarbons, a lot more oil and gas? So the spoiler alert is the answer, as you might guess, is yes. And as I'll explore in a minute, a little shortly, the yes, the answer yes, because of technology. Uh, but before we get to the how we could produce a lot more hydrocarbons yet, it's re, it, you know, we got to revisit the why we should produce more. Uh, it's in the news a lot these days uh, about the need for more hydrocarbons. In fact, we have the answer to the question of do we need more hydrocarbons coming from no more uh, important authority than the president of the United States, as has been in the, the news lately. Uh, yeah, famously and infamously, the president has petitioned Saudi Arabia to produce more oil and gas. Not, not once has he done this, but now he's you know, gone back for a second bite at the apple, as they say, uh, more recently uh, to try to persuade the Saudis not to cut production. We all know why OPEC uh, cuts production. If they think, they think the world's in, in a potential oversupply, they want to produce less to keep prices up because they're a seller mainly of oil and gas. We know that because, well, that's been going on for uh, four decades. Of course, we also know that, uh, that as the news leaked out, that uh, this administration uh, is exploring the relaxation of sanctions on Venezuela to get more oil and gas from Venezuela and exploring uh, revitalization of the, quote, nuclear deal with Iran so that Iran is desanctioned. And when Iran gets desanctioned, what can Iran do? They're one of the world's biggest sources of oil and especially natural gas. They would produce more. So there is a, a deep and obvious entanglement between the reality of the world that we live in and its need for lots of oil and gas. In fact, let's just set aside presidential and Democrat-Republican politics on this issue and maybe take from no more esteemed authority on the question of should we and do we need more oil and gas production than Elon Musk, you know, the world's richest man. I don't know if he's richer than the king of Saudi Arabia, but the richest private, let's just say he's richest private man. And and as as you, as you, uh, as, you as listeners know, as you know, uh, in earlier editions of The Last Optimist, I've talked about various things, pronouncements from Elon Musk. It's impossible to avoid Elon Musk because he, you know, he's in the news a lot. But he's he has said serially 
since the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, he has serially said that the world needs more oil and gas. We need more production. In fact, very recently, he said it again. We need to increase oil and gas production. In fact, for Elon watchers, uh, those those people who are in that category know that he also said, and I'm pretty close to getting the quote right, I'm not someone, I'm quoting Elon Musk, I'm not someone who demonizes the oil and gas industry. He didn't say he's going to stop producing electric vehicles. He just said we need more oil and gas. Uh, this, again, should be beyond obvious. In fact, also in the news recently, the chief executive officer of America's biggest bank, J.P. Morgan, he, he has also said that the United States, not just the world, but in fact, let me get the quote exact. He said, America should have been pumping more oil and gas and it should have been supported. And he also said, America should play a leadership role. We should be the swing producer, he said. We should have gotten that right in March, he said. In fact, he went on to say that it's a, quote, national security matter. It's a critical category. Those are his words. In fact, let me you end the exploration of what finance titans say with one last quote from J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. He said that increased U.S. production of oil and gas quote, should be treated almost as a matter of war at this point, nothing short of that, end quote. So look, there's, they're not alone. There's a lot of pundits, a lot of um, columnists, a lot of analysts, uh, a, a lot of people weighing in saying that the United States should produce more oil and gas. So it's, in effect, given what's going on in the world, maybe the question of the decade, not the should, but could, could America produce more oil and gas? Because if we could, then we get to deal with the politics of the should. And whether we could or not, I'll, I'll, let me come, I'm going to get to that. Uh, because again, the answer is we could. Uh, maybe a lot more than most people realize. But whether we sh should or not, and the impact of doing that, we can frame it in the context of what, is, what has already happened. That is, the shale revolution, which has been written a lot about, uh, in recent years, but not really very much in recent months. And we sort of lost the context for the impact of the uh, what happened in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, what happened in America over the last 10 or 15 years was not a, a new discovery of a new resource. The shale revolution is no different than the offshore oil revolution that took place that started 40 or 50 years earlier. Uh, Geophysicists have known that there's lots of oil uh, under the oceans, below the Earth, uh, thinner across the, the bottom of the ocean. They've known about the shale fields in America for a long time, and they've known that the shale fields contain oil and gas. In fact, the U.S. Geological Survey uh, mapped out where the shale fields are and the magnitude of their physical resource base a century ago. Uh, what was new, what the revolution wasn't a discovery. It was the development of the maturation of the tools that allowed engineers and companies to access the oil and gas locked up in the shale uh, in a cost-effective way. And it was a combination of horizontal drilling, because to drill in shale, these shale formations are horizontal. They're, you know, they're below the surface by somewhere between 5,000 feet and 12,000 feet in sort of like layers, like a crooked layer cake. 
So you have to drill horizontally over long distances, sometimes distances as much as two miles horizontally and accurately following the seam. And then you do uh, something that the engineers call hydraulic fracturing, uh, which is using high pressure water with sand and uh, some chemicals that are called surfactants, which is soapy chemicals to um, crack the rock that is at microscopic levels and hold the cracks open with sand which lets gas and oil gush out. That's what fracking is. It's a, it's a mechanical hydraulic process aided by smart drilling. So that's fracking. The so-called shale revolution was in fact a revolution. It was the single biggest shift in global energy production in modern history. The scale and this the velocity of that revolution, which was a technology revolution, I think it's still under, underappreciated despite significant hyperbole in a lot of quarters. It was the fastest and greatest addition to world energy of any kind that has ever occurred. I mean, the only comparable expansion of energy supply to the world that occurred in such a short time frame was the opening of Saudi Arabia's giant Gawar oil field in the mid 60s. I mean, it was an astonishing increase in energy production. In fact, let's put this in the, the context, the, pre, the pre-pandemic decade of the shale revolution added 700% more energy supply to the US than did the subsidized expansion of solar and wind technologies. 700% more net new energy to the United States over that decade than all of the subsidized expansion of solar and wind combined. In fact, the growth in energy supply from shale technology in the United States was nearly double the entire world's expansion of energy from solar and wind technology over the same time period, the last decade. If you think in those terms, you can see why it shook the world up. Remember the Gowar field, which had an expansion of energy supply about half as big as the shale expansion over the same time period. The Gowar field is what led to Saudi Arabia's ascendance in geopolitical power and economic power. It led directly to the formation of OPEC and of course to the geopolitical realignments that came post 1960s because of OPEC. Or put differently, it's what gave Saudi Arabia the kind of geopolitical and economic power that causes the president of the United States to petition them for help. Uh, Obviously there's been a lot in the news about the absence of the administration petitioning the American oil and gas industry for help. But that's because he's promised. uh, And in this case, the presidents make promises. And as they say, politics in elections have consequences. He promised a quote, all of government effort to reduce the production of oil and gas in America. So he's making, apparently making good on that promise. But here, coming back to the, the, the facts of what's possible as opposed to the politics of what's possible, because the politics in some respects are much easier to fix than the facts of what's possible in the geophysics and technology of energy. Imagine if we sort of answer a not hypothetical question uh, and then consider the implications of it, considering how big the impact was from the shale revolution, then the question would be, what would be the impact if the United States could expand by that much again yet? Not keep level, but expand 
oil and gas production again in the future by as much as we did in the past 10 or 15 years, or let's just say even by half as much as that, uh, it would be consequential. I mean, there's, uh, there's no question it would be consequential. So the, the question that has to be, it should be in policymakers' minds is could, could we do it? I mean, there are some naysayers we couldn't do it because we don't have enough oil or, we can, or resources. It's the, so it's the peak oil, the peak oil crowd, the, the theorists who said there's just not enough resource base in the United States. You know, we, we have to very briefly deal with um, an aside on this. You, this is this is a, one of the oldest tropes that's been around um, for, well, I don't know, since the time of Malthus uh, and the, the limits to growth. Malthus, going back, you know, uh, nearly a couple centuries. And of course, the Club of Rome and the limits to growth. The idea that we're running out of oil is still, a, you know, a popular idea in some circles. There's no shortage of oil and gas in the world. Uh, at levels that the world needs for a very, very long time. The, the question about how much oil and gas is available to society is exactly the same question about every other resource. It's about technology. Do we have access to the land where I can use technology? And do I have technology capable of accessing the resource at a price I can pay? And, and since technology gets better, we know the answer to the question is that over time, the resource base keeps expanding. The challenge, of course, is whether the technology gets good enough, fast enough, which is you know that alignment, and whether or not I'm allowed to use it. Uh, but the technology question is a little easier to answer than the politics question. In fact, one of the many flaws in, in, in forecasts about oil and gas and the future of oil and gas is a confusion about the difference between what are reported as reserves of oil and gas versus the physical resources. It sounds like a, a semantic a nuance that may be irrelevant, except it's these are profoundly different words in terms of what they actually mean and what they mean illegally. You know, under securities laws, what companies have report as reserves have a very specific and narrow definition relating to both ex specific exploration and analysis and specific assessments of what can be extracted with existing technologies, with existing capabilities. In other words, it's a very narrow definition. Give you an idea how narrow the definition of oil reserves are compared to oil resources uh, is so one last sort of fact set for uh, background context to explain why America could produce a lot more oil yet. If we wind the clock back to 1980, the official magnitude of US oil reserves were put at 30 billion barrels, roughly 30 billion barrels. So from 1980 to the year 2020, so 40 years, the U.S. produced 100 billion barrels of oil from a, a, quote, reserve base of 30 billion barrels. And today's official reserve base is 35 billion barrels. So this is not a magical chicanery. This is just a, a, re, a realization of the difference between what the physical resource base is, obviously a lot bigger than 30 billion barrels. In fact, if you do the arithmetic that I just outlined, that would suggest that what we really had was a 130 billion barrel, quote, resource, not a 30 billion barrel resource. But if it was 130, there'd be none left, but yet there's 35 billion left. Uh, the, the difference between these two seemingly irreconcilable numbers is technology. The reality is the resources are converted into qualified reserves because businesses and markets and technologies make progress. Same is true, by the way, about offshore, uh, not just onshore, but offshore oil and gas. And there's a lot more offshore resources. And in fact, the offshore resources may be the 
uh, untold story of the next decade, uh, which I'll which I'll which I'll come back to in a minute. I mean, the offshore resources were were not allowed to uh, explore explore, much less produce, on most of the continental United States offshore. In fact, 90% of the U.S. offshore domains are off limits, not just to development, but just even exploration. This is unique in the world, by the way. Uh, Essentially, every other country uh, not only allows offshore exploration, but they eagerly embrace it in their pursuit to get more oil and gas to fuel the world at lower prices. So let's talk about could the United States, could America uh, participate in a resurgence of production? Not a status quo, but produce a significant amount of new oil and gas supply, significant enough to reshape geopolitics again, and significant enough to drive down energy inflation. Well, uh, let's let's stick with offshore before I come back to the shale revolution. Uh, we already have some evidence of of the possibilities of what technology can do and what's been happening in the last uh, five to 10 years in the offshore domains. In fact, in the Southern Caribbean off off of uh, Guyana, Exxon has been not only proving out and developing, but has brought online new uh, offshore deep water resources there that uh, are coming from an oil field. It's one of the biggest new uh, expansions in the world. And they've been able to bring on new supplies at levels that are really remarkable in only a handful of years, that is in three to five years from, from discovery and validation to operation, which by historic standards is light speed. It's not three to five months, I grant you, but three to, three to five years from validation to production and deep uh, offshore resource domains is really quite something. It's quite a revolution in and of itself. In fact, offshore matters, by the way, because offshore rigs, roughly speaking, if all the offshore production were uh, combined, it would be uh, the be, if it were a single nation, it would be the biggest uh, oil supplier to the world. The off the offshore production of oil and gas globally in the world's oceans is about a quarter of all the uh, world's oil supply. So it's it's arguably not only a critical domain; it's a critical domain to future expansion. Whether or not we can access more oil and gas from offshore domains in the United States with U.S. companies is not a technology question. It's a political question. 90%, again, of offshore domains are not open at all to exploration, never mind development. And improving access to that, improving the productivity, and obviously the operational safety of those domains is all about technology. So let's come back to the um, the shale question, though, because what you're hearing today from a lot of quarters, including uh, executives in the oil and gas industry, who have said, and some quite bluntly, that they don't plan to and aren't and don't believe they can or should significantly significantly increase production of onshore oil and gas from the shale fields. So why are they saying this? Well, there's there's two answers. Uh, one of them is political, and and the politics do matter here uh, because the nonstop drumbeat of focus, not just in the media, but increasingly in investment circles on the idea that the world is going to transition away from oil and gas and that investors shouldn't invest in companies that are developing future oil and gas supplies, this so-called ESG movement, the environmental social governance movement, which has been co-opted to basically mean not oil and gas. Uh, It's a uh, motivated, again, 
beyond obviously by the, the, uh, the climate policies, that movement has had an effect. It has, it has increased uncertainty. It has uh, removed capital from both private and public markets that are directed at the companies that do the oil and gas development and exploration. It has, in short, been somewhat effective at, uh, let's say, taking enthusiasms, if not even direct actions out of increasing oil and gas investment on the private sector and the public sector. And in fact, this administration has famously or infamously, depending on which side of the political aisle you're on, uh, uh, taken off, put off limits the development of uh, oil and gas on, on federal lands. The federal lands are, are are not all of the oil and gas production in America. It's, a, it's about a fifth. But it, it, just consider <laughs> at a time when we're petitioning the Saudis to not decrease oil and gas production, the same uh, government is removing from the equation um, either attempting to or serially passing executive orders to or implementing regulatory impediments to production on a fifth of America's uh, oil and gas producing lands. So it's a, a discordant political dynamic, but again, back to the technology, could could and should, uh, not could, should, could, could we produce more oil and gas from that? So when you have oil and gas executives saying that they can't, you sort of have to separate out the, that there aren't, aren't planning to and therefore cannot, you have to separate the politics from the technology. And it's not that easy to do. In some cases, it's obvious they will be candid and say, we're not doing it because of the uncertainties, because of the hostilities in investment markets and so forth. Uh, and of course, and this is even true with the, the big run up in the, 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 the uh, equity values of the stocks that in the oil and gas industry this year, it's been one of the best performing sectors in, uh, in 2022. So what they're saying is that we don't think that we can replicate the past, the technological revolution of the shale ecosystem, that increasing production uh, is just not going to happen. We can maintain production. We can increase it slowly. And in fact, we see it in the data that U.S. Uh, US production is not growing at the rate it was uh, pre-lockdowns. And what the lockdowns did, of course, is they, uh, they did kind of an X-ray on the nature of supply chains, including supply chains that make oil and gas production possible. And they did a lot of damage to supply chains. And you add to that the, the geopolitical uncertainty, and you really do a lot of damage to supply chains. We also have a labor problem. So when you start layering in all of the issues that big industries face in general, in the oil and gas industry, which is, is also an industrial sector player, but they have with labor force, skilled labor, um, regulatory impediments, supply chain impediments, you put it all together, what you're seeing, the effect of that is that growth in production is very slow. We're not getting a, a overnight revolution. But are they right that there can't be one? Again, I will say, I will not make a prediction on the politics of whether or not we will restore a system that in effect unleashes the private sector to try to produce more. Let's just deal with the question of, could the private sector replicate the architecture of the past shale revolution? Again, I will repeat, it's an energy revolution that was the biggest addition of energy supplies in history. Could we get half of that again could we go halfway there because now now we're talking about an industry that's pretty mature the shale oil and gas industry 15 years ago was 
almost non-existent. I mean, there was definitely some hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, but very, very little. Now it's a big industry. It's an industry, depending on how you measure it, that's in the sort of several hundred billion dollar per year range on the um, in the United States. So it's a big industry, a lot of lessons learned. It's a fairly mature industry. It's gone through three destructive cycles of price destruction. Um, you know, the 2008 recession, the 2014 price crash, which was engineered by the way, by the Russians and the Saudis to damage the U.S. shell industry, a subject we could turn to another day. And uh, of course, the 2020 lockdowns, which uh, was another epic price destruction. Those three episodes of price destruction had an impact in the global oil industry, again, in terms of the labor force, in terms of investment confidence, and of course, in terms of the supply chain. But the technologies keep getting developed. The technologists... In a, in a way, develop technologies external to all these factors. That is, obviously, some businesses, they spend money in R&D to develop a technology. But many new technologies emerge not because of a business directing their investment in that technology, but because the business gets to use technology developed by somebody else. Let me give you the obvious example, the one that's in my book, The Cloud Revolution. Yeah, Steve Jobs did not invent the microprocessor, did not invent the lithium battery. And he did, he did not invent the cellular network. He did not invent the color microscopic LCD LED screen. But what he did is he took technologies invented by others and put them to work in a different way and made famously the first iPhone, the first successful smartphone. Uh, it's, the same true, it's the same true across all of the industries. And in fact, the, the uh, oil and gas industry now is about to benefit in a similar way from technologies developed by other people and other industries, and specifically uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and automation. Those are the two constellations of technologies that are now maturing that you will not be surprised to know or believe, learn that I'm bullish about. Again, that's what my book's about. But the relevance of the maturation of artificial intelligence and the maturation of automation, especially robotics in industrial domains, they have deep relevance to all industries and in particular to the oil and gas industry. I mean, every part of our industrial ecosystem that makes the things that we need in the world, that makes the products that make services possible. I mean, the service of overnight shipping through computers is made possible by manufacturing computers, by manufacturing airplanes and trucks. We have to manufacture things. We have to mine things to make the things we manufacture to then provide the services. So underlying all of every service is the continuous improvement in the machines and the tools that we manufacture and that we make for materials using energy. And the goal through all of history has been to improve the efficiency and the efficacy of the tools and the processes that allow us to make all these things and operate them. Put in economist terms, that's called productivity. We're trying to use knowledge and intelligence, new designs and new techniques, new tools to reduce inputs, that is fewer labor hours, fewer quantities of materials, fewer, less time in general to make the same product and to make a superior product. That's productivity that drives costs down, that kills inflation, that creates wealth. That's a broad economic reality, but when you drill down to a specific industry like oil and gas, the same holds true. We should expect that the maturation of the digital tools of the 21st century 
will eventually have an impact. We see evidence already, they're beginning to have an impact. The, the data are already there. I mean, it, it, offshore oil platforms are very expensive and uh, you know, multi-billion dollar systems that can take from, from concept to installation over the most of the uh, era of offshore uh, exploration and development. It's taken about a decade. That, that timeline has been compressed almost in half, in fact, even more so in, in, recent, uh, in recent months. Uh, but let's just say cut in half, cutting in half the timeline uh, to go from uh, decision to an operational offshore platform because of the efficacy of supply chain management, design, system testing, and safety from artificial intelligence, computer modeling, all the new classes of materials to do that profoundly changes not only the velocity of that particular you know, industry and task, but also cuts its costs because the old adage, you know, time is money, money is time is uh, never more true than it is in massive industrial products. So every class of artificial intelligence tool, and, and by artificial intelligence, I really mean not the spooky stuff that replaces people, but the kind of, of uh, software that amplifies people's capabilities. Uh, the democratization of artificial intelligence sort of essentially uh, you know, accelerates everything, but what accelerates first and most importantly are the digital domains because they themselves are easy to digitalize. So that, that's the information domains when I design something. But then when I want to test something, when I want to test a new design, a new machine tool, a new drilling rig, uh, in the medical domains, a new way of doing surgery, the testing of that can now be done increasingly in silico, in computers, in supercomputers. You, you still have to do the physical testing, but when you do the first testing in digital twins in silico, you accelerate the process. And accelerating the process means that you get the billet sooner at the same level of safety or even greater safety. Those kinds of things are already happening. It's in fact what Shell did, what Exxon have done and the in the offshore domains already. And it's in fact what the shale industry companies will increasingly do. They'll come to it later uh, in part because this it's a, we'll just say it's a more conservative industry in, 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 in not in political terms, uh, but in uh, operational terms, because these are very different operations run by very different kinds of people. But what's going on now is a, well, I'll call it a capitulation to reality. That is the, the twin reality for the operators of oil and gas assets, industries that operate on on the shale fields, like the twin realities that they're facing is first, a shortage of skilled labor. So you need computers automation to enhance the skilled labor you have. And of course, an increase in supply chain challenges and costs. So there, again, what you do is you look for solutions to those challenges and you find the answers by again, using software and automation to gain more information to make faster and better decisions, to find new classes of suppliers, to find workarounds, if you like. All of that can be done more effectively and more rapidly using computers and automation, or if you like, AI and robots. We see that's already happening. We know it's already happening in the data based on the numbers of the sales of software across the whole entire, entire industrial domain and the sale of software into the oil and gas industry itself. So it's 
it sounds, you know, maybe mildly um, naive to say that, you know, digitalization, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence will now make a, a material difference in the oil and gas industry. But, you know, let's, let's, let's not do it on specifics. Let's just look at the industry itself and ask what they think. I mean, we know the answer to that because we do in all businesses what we do in politics. We take polls. You can ask people what they're doing. And typically, they'll be honest about what they're doing in industrial domains, unlike in political domains, <laughs> being mildly facetious, because, you know, you're just asking, you're asking people if they use a certain class of software or what they think about it, or they've used certain classes of automation or what they think about it. And it's not, these are political observations are just a, a way of gathering intelligence, if you like, about what's, what's really going on. I mean, we could do it by, you could do it by anecdote, you know, Shell um, properly bragged about the fact that the, the design and planning process that sort of the, the whole concatenation of documentation and planning for one of their new uh, Gulf of Mexico offshore platforms. One of the one one feature of their process that used to take them 24 hours, and they you know published this in a in a, in a uh, oil and gas journal. Uh, you know, one of the features of that kind of process that normally took 24 hours, they are able to do in 20 minutes now with the new class of uh, hyper realistic software and simulation. So if you apply that logic, you know. Uh, ac across a lot of a lot of tasks, you're changing a 24 hour, hour task to a 20 minute task. It's consequential, especially when you apply it to lots of tasks, and which is of course what's going on. And this is so. Is that is it a one off deal? Is that is that just one example that they're throwing out? Or in fact, we seeing a lot of that going on. Well, we are. I mean, there was a uh, a survey that was done at, uh, very recently. In fact, uh, just about six months ago, of a thousand professionals in the oil and gas industry, the people. The people that uh, you know are, are doing the work that I'm talking about. So that survey found that about nearly three quarters of that of that cohort, the professionals in the oil and gas industry, are, are saying that they're planning to increase their investment in digital technologies. It's sort of that, this survey has been going on, by the way. This this survey or this is a um, oil and gas uh, uh, journal, digital energy journal. They've been doing a survey on digitalization of oil and gas uh, annually for I think probably two decades now. We've been talking about digitalizing oil and gas for a long time. The oil and gas industry has been using computers for a long time. This is, but this, this, this most recent survey was the highest, highest level ever of uh, conviction and response saying investments, investments going up, investments already going up, investments plan to go up. And in fact, it's, it's, we see it in the spending. Uh, this, the spending on just software in the oil and gas industry by the oil and gas industry to do oil and gas related services is now a multi-billion dollar business, arguably a $5 billion a year business that um, one Barclays forecast puts at becoming a $150 billion business within the decade. Now, just think about this. You don't buy $150 billion of software, software services uh, to produce $150 billion of product. Right? You, you Industry-wide, you would expect to spend on software would be less than 10% of the sort of the overall costs of, or rather the overall revenues of a business. So, or put differently, uh, you know, a multi-trillion dollar industry spending spending um, uh, less than 10% of gross revenues on something that amplifies the ability to get more revenues faster is not a crazy, not a crazy idea. And in fact, that's exactly what's what's going on. Now, McKinsey, of course, they're always in the game. They, they did a survey too, that the, it was at the end of last year. And they wanted to 
get their arms around whether or not businesses, industrial businesses, uh, think that digitalization is happening. Are they going to use more AI or not? And you'll be unsurprised to learn that they they found that this again the highest level uh, of response on any survey like this in uh, in the last decade. Uh, AIs sort of at the top of list, number one or two of things that industries are chasing and pursuing, and not and not for dystopian reasons, not to quote take over the world, but in fact to amplify what industries are doing now, to upskill the workforce, to automate things, to release people from doing drudgery taxes like ta- tasks like inspection, so that people that are doing tasks that are virtual robot or a physical robot robot could do the human beings can then do higher value tasks because the world's short labor the short short skilled labor so ai automation robots are coming at a unique time uh in a, in, a, in a sense they're coming at exactly the time that they're needed they're coming exactly maturing becoming commercially useful becoming practical at exactly the time when the world needs to do exactly what elon musk and Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan said, we need to produce more oil and gas. And specifically, the United States needs to produce more oil and gas. The answer to the question, could America do as much in the future as we did in the past? Obviously, it's impossible to predict that specifically, except qualitatively. So count me on the side of saying the answer is yes, because I was in the camp, the minority, that 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And certainly when I wrote a, a book with my colleague, Peter Huber, The Bottomless Well, when he and I published that book in 2005, at the peak of peak oil theory, at the invisible dawn of the Shell Revolution, we we were in the minority predicting that technology would unleash a new boom in oil and gas production in the United States. And our forecast turned out to be right. It turned out to be right for the right reason. We said it was because of technology, not because of new discoveries. And the industry, including the oil and gas industry, uh, didn't agree with us. I mean, I'm not talking about the engineers and the scientists who were inventing the future, but rather the the executives, if you like, and the, the, the oil and gas pundits and experts disagreed. They thought that couldn't happen. Well, it did happen. So could it happen again? I would... I would uh, take the same claim today as I took then for exactly the same reasons. If you examine the architecture of the technology that's being developed and the nature of it, its state of readiness, you would reach the same conclusion today as I reached 10 or 15 years ago with my my colleague, is that we are on the cusp of yet another cycle uh, if we let it happen. And that's the political question. Not, Not could we do it, now, could the United States produce a dramatic increase in oil and gas? Remember, the United States is currently a bigger exporter of oil and gas than five OPEC nations. And we're, we're not just the biggest producer. That's not just the critical. The critical thing is to supply the world to help offset the geopolitical dynamics that are in place and to drive inflation down, not just for Americans, but for the world in the world economy. We need to increase oil and gas production. Could we? Unequivocally, yes. Should we? You know my view on that. Can we politically? Well, the jury is out on that. Count me an optimist that that will happen. It might take a little bit of time, a little bit of uh, 
politicking to get, get around to doing that. But uh, that's that's where uh, that that that's where you one requires some optimism. Uh, the realism is that we could, we can do it. Whether we will do it requires us to be optimistic that we'll be motivated to do it politically, and in fact, we'll do it. I'll close with saying that this does not uh, mean that we should abandon uh, oil uh, production of wind and solar and electric vehicles. In fact, in a political trade, I suppose you could say we don't even have to abandon the subsidies. Uh, the subsidies are affordable if we have lots of cheap energy in the part of the uh, economy where most of the energy is produced. If the 80% of the economy, which is which is supplied by oil and gas and coal, is made so efficient and so inexpensive, we can we can afford the other stuff. In fact, that's what's, what's, that's what happened in Europe for the last 20 years. They were able to afford to build an expensive energy infrastructure based on wind and solar because it was being financed by cheap Russian oil and gas. That was a bad trade. I would say a good trade would be to finance our ambitions about wind, solar, and electric vehicles on cheap oil and gas made inexpensive because of American production. That's not a jingoistic observation. That's just a geopolitical observation that I think would be hard to dispute. So I'm optimistic, not that that can happen because it can, but I am optimistic that it will probably happen. I think the only variable is whether or not we get on with that task in the next year or two, or whether we wait a couple of years to get on with that task. We'll find out soon enough. So that's it for now. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please please rate us at your favorite platform. Um, as, as Again, as always, uh, positive ratings are what we like to hear, but criticism we're happy to take. Well, not happy to take. We willingly take. <laughs> take under advisement, as they say. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. <laughs>